I am going to be reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9. I'll be reading from that chapter. We're taking a look at verses 1 through verse 17. Luke chapter 9 is what I would call a turning point in Luke's gospel narrative. Because up until now, Luke has been primarily concerned with the ministry that Jesus did in the region of Galilee, which is where his hometown of Nazareth was. And some of you may remember that ancient Palestine 2,000 years ago was divided into three regions. You had Galilee to the north, and then to the south you had Samaria, and then to the south of Samaria, you had Judea, and in Judea is Jerusalem, and the temple, which is one of the major symbols and identifying markers of the Jewish people. It's the center of their worship. And what Luke is going to do is he's going to take us on a journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And then eventually the place outside the city where Jesus is going to be crucified. Now, he's not going to do it all in chapter 9. I'm saying this is the beginning of that journey, but that's where it ends. And in fact, Luke chapter 9 is the first place in Luke's gospel where Jesus clearly tells the disciples that his mission is going to end in his death. He's going to be killed and resurrected and, of course, they don't understand those words at this point because it's just so foreign to their concept of who a Messiah is and what his mission is going to look like. And that brings me to verse 1. Let me read down through verse 9. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And to heal. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Wherever they do not welcome you, as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. Now Herod the ruler heard about all that had taken place, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the ancient prophets had arisen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he tried to see him. Now, before I get into the sending of the twelve in more detail, I want to address the reason why Luke mentions Herod in this passage, because it really wouldn't make much sense if all Luke is trying to do is kind of matter-of-factly telling us, oh, and by the way, Herod was curious about Jesus too. There's more to it than just that. We know what kind of man Herod is. We know what he did to the last and greatest prophet from the Old Testament period, John the Baptist. He threw him in jail 
And then at the bequest of his wife, he had John executed. And what Luke is doing is he's painting a picture for us where we begin to see some small but dark clouds forming on the horizon, some cross-shaped clouds. It makes the tone a little bit darker and a little bit more threatening because Jesus is now attracting attention of a not entirely wholesome nature. And that's what Luke is trying to point out to us here when he mentions Herod. And that brings me to the sending of the twelve. And what I want to insist on, first and foremost, is this mission that Jesus gives the apostles is a unique mission with a unique set of instructions. Now, why do I say it's unique? Well, because when we get to Luke chapter 22, we'll find Jesus giving his disciples a very different set of instructions, which are almost the opposite of the instructions he gives them here in this passage. If you'll come with me to Luke chapter 22, I'll point the passage out that I'm referring to so I can make my meaning a little bit more clear. If you look in Luke chapter 22, verse 35, Jesus talking to his disciples refers back to this episode that we're looking at today. Verse 35, he said to them, when I sent you out without a purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, no, not a thing. He said to them, but now the one who has a purse must take it and likewise a bag. The one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless, and indeed, what is written about me is being fulfilled. Pardon me. So, in other words, we shouldn't take this as a model for how to do the Great Commission. Now, we know, of course, that certain missionaries like the Apostle Paul oftentimes went without food, had no money, was very badly treated. We know that from the testimony of the New Testament. But there's nothing in Scripture which suggests that the Apostle Paul, before he took a mission trip, imposed these restrictions upon himself and said, I'm not going to take any extra food or any extra money or extra clothing. And that's why I say we shouldn't take this as a model for how to do The Great Commission. But be that as it may, if we want to get to the heart of this passage, I think we really have to try to imagine what it would be like to be sent on a mission trip like this. Now, on the one hand, it would be great to be given the authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick, and to experience God's authority working through your life in that way. And by the way, I want to say, in addition, that we shouldn't think that this authority that Jesus is giving the disciples has anything to do with their own personal piety. It is purely a gift that he's giving them to complete this mission. We have to remember, at this point... Judas Iscariot is still numbered among the twelve. 
And I see no reason to believe that he had no part in casting out demons or healing the sick. So it had nothing to do with their piety. It was Jesus' gift of grace to them. But to be sent without anything, all right, to be traveling, try to think about that. They have no money. They have no food. They have no credit card. They have no bank account. They have no dental. They have no vision. They have no medical. And that kind of a trip is a horror to a modern mind with our modern sensibilities. I mean, we would just call that suicidal. But that's what Jesus asked them to do. He said, you need to go out and travel in the ancient world, by the way if anything, was less safe than it is in our modern world. He said, you're going to go out without anything, and you're going to have to completely rely upon God. And I think one of the things that Jesus is doing is trying to teach his disciples that when you seek the kingdom first, all these things that you need shall be added unto you. Now, that's a saying of our Lord, which is music to our ears in one sense. We love to be told that our needs are going to be met and that we can, in a sense, rest secure. But I think sometimes we neglect to remember that relying upon God in this way is dependent upon what? Seeking the kingdom First, in other words, Jesus did not say, pursue your own selfish desires first and all these things will be added unto you. He said, seek the kingdom first and all these things will be added unto you. And so if we have trouble relying upon God, maybe one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, am I seeking the kingdom First, And it's a difficult question to answer sometimes because I'm not trying to suggest it looks the same in the life of every Christian. History tells us it doesn't look the same. If you look at all the different saints who have lived throughout the age of the church, they were very different from one another sometimes. And they sometimes lived very different lives. But the point I want to stress is we can't just treat the question like fodder for casual Sunday school conversations. Let's talk about what it means to seek the kingdom of God first and sit on couches and drink coffee and then come back to the real world. It's something that we have to figure out. And at the very least, I think we can know what it doesn't look like. I read an article in a Christian publication the other day about a missionary in Western Europe. And some of you probably know that Western Europe is very, very secular. And this was a story written by a Christian minister. And he mentioned that he had an experience counseling a family who was grieving and devastated over the fact that a deceased relative had spent the last days of his life sorrowfully admiring an expensive car that he bought but never got to drive because he was too sick to do it. 
And I read that and I was just blown away because it just gives you a picture of how pathetic human life is without God. I mean, this man didn't spend his last days fellowshipping with his friends and family and people who loved him. All he wanted to do is look at this expensive car. And that's how he ended. And we think that what the disciples was doing was a gamble. But what we don't recognize is how modern men and women gamble with their lives. You know, this man gambled. He set his hopes and he made the foundation of those hopes this expensive car and he died before he got to enjoy it. He gambled and he lost. And every time we put ourselves in front of the kingdom, we gamble. Every time without exception. The only sure thing, if we're looking for sure things, if we're looking for security, the only sure thing is to seek the kingdom first. That is the only way you never, never, never lose. Is to seek the kingdom of God first. The disciples did it and God provided everything. That they needed. Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, I'm not trying to suggest that when we live this way, we will always meet with success, especially not as the world counts success. And Jesus tells this to the disciples. He implies that sometimes you're going to be going through these villages and you're going to be preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and people are not going to want to hear it. And it's a powerful testimony to human depravity that so many hearts in this world are so unwilling to be receptive to the messengers of their creator. I never tire of reminding myself, though I fear some people tire of me reminding them, that when we read passages like this, we have to remember the apostles are not being sent to secularists. They're not being sent to atheists. They are not being sent to heathens. They are not being sent to pagans. They are being sent to the adopted, elected people of Yahweh in the flesh. And they weren't accepting the message of their creator because it didn't conform to their idea of what it was supposed to sound like. They didn't accept the messengers because they didn't conform to their idea of what a messenger should look like. Some of them, at least. And Jesus said, when you reach a village like this, you need to shake the dust off your feet. And what more powerful symbol can you give? I don't even want the dirt from this city to cling to the bottom of my shoes. And... They were absolving themselves of responsibility for those people. They had done their duty. They went to them and they preached the good news. We will not always meet with success, unfortunately, when we try to lead people to a knowledge of the truth. And we have to accept that from the outset. Otherwise, we can start going astray. But nonetheless... Ministry of Jesus is gaining steam in spite of some setbacks. We know this because 
Luke makes it clear that crowds are starting to gather once again. The apostles come back from their journey. They tell Jesus what they have done. And then they withdraw to a place called Bethsaida. And this is the setting for the feeding of the 5,000. So let me go back to Luke chapter 9 and read from verse 10 now down to verse 17. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. He took them with him and withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. When the crowds found out about it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed to be cured. The day was drawing to a close and the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions, for we are here in a deserted place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. Pardon me. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men and... We can take that to mean there's 5,000 plus. Sit down in groups. He said, make them sit down in groups of about 50. They did so and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And all ate and were filled. What was left over was gathered up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now, real quickly, I want to say that some people have tried to interpret this in a less than miraculous way. I remember when I was a student at Point Loma, there was a speaker who tried to do this. And he said to us, why don't you all just take out whatever food you have with you right now and distribute it amongst your fellow students and let's see what we can come up with. And people had Tic Tacs and gum and whatnot that they had brought with them to chapel and we passed it around. And I get the impression he was trying to imply this is what the feeding of the 5,000 was really like. Now, I don't really think that's true. That doesn't make sense. I mean, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. No, this was a miracle. This was... A miracle of God. And the feeding of the 5,000 is one of those special miracles that appears in all four canonical Gospels. Doesn't always happen that way. Obviously, the early Christians thought this was a very significant passage in the life of Jesus. And it has very strong echoes, again, of the Old Testament, of the Exodus of Moses out in the wilderness with the Israelites who are hungry and they find the bread of heaven that was called manna. And now Jesus is here. We're looking at the new Exodus and he's out in a deserted place with a crowd of people and food is scarce. And I think it's important to recognize this story takes place on the heels of of the mission of the twelve that we just read about. Jesus sent them out without anything. And they came back and all of their needs 
were provided for. They trusted in God and God came through. They lacked nothing. He had taken care of all of their needs, but lurking in their hearts, there's still some leaven of unbelief. And their mistake is an easy one to sympathize with because it's an easy one to make. It is the temptation to believe that God doesn't know exactly what he's doing. Now, we never put the temptation in those words. We don't say it like that, obviously. But how much of the stress and anxiety that we experience is generated from the idea that the God who watches over us in heaven is not, after all, like Jesus Christ. Because if the Bible is true, and the God that we worship is exactly like Jesus Christ, we have to know that he has never abandoned us and he is perfectly aware of what our needs are all the time. When we look at our problems, whether they be of a financial nature or a physical nature, psychological nature, emotional nature, we should never let the impression that we're on our own overwhelm us. If God is like Jesus, that can't be true. And Jesus said, do not judge according to the appearances. This is in John chapter 7. But judge righteous judgment. Now, why would he say that unless appearances are deceiving? That's the point. We can't live on the basis of appearance. We can't live by sight because it's deceptive. We have to walk by faith. We have to trust him. Now, why do I say all this in connection with this episode we're looking at here? Well, it's because of the disciples' decision that they need to act as Jesus' counselor. Now, to be thorough... In the gospel, according to John, he puts this episode in a different light. In John's gospel, it's Jesus who puts the question to Philip and puts him to the test and asks him, where are we going to get food for all these people? But Luke paints a different picture. In Luke's gospel, it's the disciples that come to Jesus, not with a question, but with the solution. Jesus, there's a problem here, and we figured out how to solve it. You need to send these people away. So that they can get food and lodging. Now, of course, it's good that the disciples were concerned about the needs of the people. That is a step in the right direction. There's some promise there. But what's amiss? What's amiss is the fact that they didn't think that Jesus is perfectly aware of what the needs of the people are. He knows exactly what needs to be done. I mean, how often do we pray to God like that? God, there's a problem, but don't worry, God. I've got the solution to the problem. And so what I want you to do is make my solution happen. Take the people, send them out, tell them to get food and lodging. And Jesus says, well, I've got a different solution. You give them something to eat. And they're sitting there thinking, well, on one side of the equation, we've got 5,000 plus hungry people on the other side of the equation. Sorry, I'm a math teacher. We've got 12 or sorry, five loaves of bread and two fish. Now that that doesn't add up Jesus. And what he's trying to say is, no, you've got the equation wrong. 
You're right about one thing. On one side, you've got 5,000 plus hungry people. But on the other side, you've got five loaves, two fish, and one Jesus. And that changes the game entirely. It's a whole new ball game now. They should have trusted in him. They should have put their entire confidence in him. Jesus had already shown them that God was willing to take care of their needs. And he says, all right, here's what you do now. Break up the crowd and tell them to sit in groups of 50. Now, what we witness here with this miracle is simply an accelerated occurrence of something that God does every single day. It's just an accelerated occurrence of God's provision for his creatures. He feeds us every day. Now, the fact that he doesn't always do it through a miracle doesn't mean that it's not his provision. And the fact that God doesn't force his generosity upon us doesn't give us an excuse to neglect it and give him thanks. What Jesus is doing here in an accelerated fashion, God is doing for us all the time. We've got to remember that. And one of the lessons that is sometimes drawn from this passage, and by the way, I think it's a valid lesson, I think it's true, is that we can take the little bit that we have that's not enough and offer it to God and God will make it enough. Now, that is especially true in reference to the boy who had the bread and the fish. Now, we don't hear about him in Luke's gospel. You hear about him in John's gospel. That's where he says that it was a little boy who had the loaves and the fish. And so in his case, it was true. He gave up the little bit that he had to Jesus, and Jesus fed 5,000 people with it. But if we think about this story in reference to the disciples, they didn't have anything. They didn't have a little bit that they offered up to God. They had nothing. And I think that that is actually a truer picture of the position that we're actually in. All of our giving, all of our giving is ultimately just a giving back to what God has already given us. And the greatest lesson that we can learn from this story is fleshed out more again in John's version of the story because in that version of the story, Jesus tells the crowds, look, don't labor for the bread that perishes, but labor for the bread that lasts unto life everlasting. The human heart is a curious thing because it's, it's larger on the inside than it is on the outside. And the only thing that can fill it is the infinite, everlasting God. What we need is the bread of life. What we need and what Jesus is giving to us by his grace is himself. That's the fundamental need that needs to be addressed, not a physical hunger. It's the spiritual hunger and the recognition that God, by his grace, has offered us the food that will satisfy that spiritual thirst. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we just thank you for your provision in our lives. 
And forgive us, God, when we have neglected to thank you for it properly. Renew our hearts, Lord, that we might have open eyes, that we might take notice of your presence each and every day. And we do thank you for this gathering place you've given us. We thank you for times of worship. We thank you for all the ministry that is happening here in this building for lives that you are lifting up. And we just pray, God, that you would continue to allow us to be a part of what you're doing. And may we return to give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.